Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we discuss the reasons that so many workers dislike their workplace environment. Along the way, we also cover making off with capacitors, writing off capital assets, and goofing off with entertaining podcasts. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 125, Cubicle Farms, February 6th, 2017. So, Jeff, how's the budget at the university? Are you stuck working in a cubicle or do you get a nice fancy office? Well, I don't have to work in a cubicle, but I do have to share an office. Uh, and it's not a huge office, but uh, my office mate is kind enough to uh, not make too much noise or to uh, be too inconsiderate. In fact, he's a pretty nice guy, so we get along okay. Is it a converted closet? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's not huge. I mean, we, we have two, uh, I guess you would consider, the, consider them normal-sized academic desks in there. Uh, but once you put in the two desks and the, the chairs and then another chair for for a student to come in and sit down next to each of our desks there's not a whole lot of extra room in there it's it's certainly not spacious by any means now have you been lying to us for four or five years and it's the ta office not an actual professor's office well there are some tas that that uh, have this office or or an office like this normally they have to share also but uh yeah i think it is whoever comes along you know whoever needs an office whether it be a ta or a a uh, professor uh, there are several sets of cubicles upstairs where the TAs normally get sent. So normally they only get a cubicle, whereas the uh, professors get a door to close. Very cool. I was kind of making a joke, but that was very enlightening. <laughs> well, now, so as a uh, as an engineer, when I got my first job, I worked in a open space that had uh, we had big hard metal desks, and there was like a, a glass partition between the rows. So when you look straight ahead, you could see the other engineer on the other side, but kind of you know wavy through the glass. You know, it wasn't a real good image. Um, and then I, when I moved on to uh, some other jobs, again, I was in these big cubicles that had, I don't know, four or five foot walls. And then I, I moved into uh, other, you know, other jobs where the cubicles were shorter and had shorter walls. And then I worked in, 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 uh, when I worked at the machine shop, it was basically an open space. I mean, everybody's desk was just wide out in the open. There was no wall. There was no separation. You could see and hear everything that was going on in the office. So I think I've covered just about most of the workspaces uh, other than having a private office. I don't believe I've ever had a private office. Yeah. See, I've had a private office, but I've never had a wide open uh, office space. Hmm. Well, you're missing something. Let me tell you. <laughs> I don't know about that. I like the office. It was nice. Yeah. But it had a big window, so I could I couldn't just get in there and take my pants off. It was kind of sad. <laughs> Oh, and at that point, what's why even have an office? <laughs> you get a window. <laughs> I, it was it wasn't a window to the outside. It was a window to the hallway. Uh-huh. I would have been fine if the gardener, whoever saw me, <laughs> he did, he doesn't control my race. They might not have been fine with it. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it would have been reflective glass. I don't know, or, uh, one way so he can't see in to get me. Hmm. I don't know. We got to start this over. Now everyone's going <laughs> to know my weird fetishes. <laughs> nope, too late. 
Damn. It's already on the internet, huh? Yep. Yep. Immediately it goes to the internet. Damn. Yeah. Wish I'd just start streaming this live. <laughs> that would cut down on the editing so much, Jeff. Uh, that it would. Uh, that it would. So what about you, Adam? Do you, uh, do you currently work in a uh, cubicle? I have a private office with a door and everything. Wow. I, I guess I technically have a window, but it's got this uh, frosting stuff. So there's just this tiny little slit just big enough for your eyeballs to see through for uh, people to peek yeah. in to see if you're in there. And then you're trying to figure out who is that based on their eyeballs. Hmm. And do you get pretty good at guessing? Yeah, usually. Um, there, there's a couple that you can tell that they're they're jumping to try to look through there, and you know, a couple of short people. And, <laughs> uh, you know, oh, it's one of these three people. Oh, okay, that's that person. Um, yeah, they can come on in. Uh, right. But yes, private office. Okay. Well, that's nice. And Brian, I am also in the private office club. Wow. You guys are um, so lucky. Oh, no. it's It just means that I have more space to store burned up prototypes and <laughs> and the like. It's it's shocking how much my office is filled with gray bins full of parts from DigiKey and epoxy things that don't smell quite right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure that there should be a uh, material safety data sheet for my office just based on the smell. Right. So, are you trying to are you trying to tell us that you your office is the storage closet? No, 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 no. It's just it. I accumulate prototypes really quick, mm -hmm. and uh, and you just can't bear to get rid of them. It doesn't pay to get rid of them until the pro until the project's moved on at least six months. Because mm. even that, like, it's shocking how often I'm harvesting parts out of you know caps and ICs out of uh, old prototypes. You know, it's probably not worth your time to salvage a 10 cent cap from a board. It's not the 10 cent caps, but you'd be shocked. So if it's, it's more about time. So if I want to run a test and I, the only place that I have a thousand puff cap of a particular size is on a board that I used previously, I could wait a day and a half to run that test by the time DigiKey gets me something. Or I can go and pull it out of a, you know, static-proof bag and desolder apart and, you know, be doing my testing inside of 10 minutes. You know, that's where it's really useful. Actually, it just happened this week where, like, I needed a 1,000-puff thousand, thousand uh, 480-VAC class-Y cap. And I needed three of them. I had two legit parts in bags. <laughs> and... I needed to find one more. I actually had to go into my the neighboring office. I one of my so, grab one of my software uh, engineers' devices and clip a capacitor off of it, <laughs> and just figured that he wouldn't miss it. And uh, did you at least share that you were taking this part? No, <laughs> it was a software guy. How is he going to know? Yeah, I mean, worst case, it's just going to radiate. Yeah. <laughs> But the joke's on me because he stole my entire prototype device today. So he got that cat back, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's my office is mostly filled with uh, flat panel monitors and uh, an oversized desk and a, uh, a ton of bins of prototypes. Cool. So I am not a hoarder. If you came to my house, it would not look like that. <laughs> Just at work. Yes. 
Adam can testify. I don't. I'm not. A, I generally don't hold on to things. I think I remember that. <laughs> so, right. Well, you know, uh, lots of engineers work in big offices, and therefore, like so many other workers, uh, they get placed in cubicle farms or what's the trendy thing? Open office plans. Uh, yeah. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about what makes workers dislike their workspace and uh, maybe how that applies to engineers. Is there a reason we're talking about this? Well, as a matter of fact, there is. Segway. We got an email from Manraj, and Manraj said the following. He said, I am an analog IC designer, currently in the process of relocating from a UK-based office to a US-based office. Having visited the new office last month, I was taken aback by the six to seven foot high cubicle walls. I walked in and I couldn't see anyone else, even though there were people in the office. Coming from an open office plan, I felt like it was kind of moving back to the 90s. By open plan, I mean rows of desks, but no separation between neighbors other than a foot high spacer between rows. I wanted to know what you guys think about this. I can see a justification in cubicles that you'd want to concentrate on your work. Does it help in collaborative design tasks? He continues, here in the UK, I've had informal meetings with other designers just by overhearing their discussions with someone else. I feel such quote-unquote sporadic chats with others will not be as common with six-foot-high cubicle walls. Anytime we need privacy, we stick earphones in so that people know we are doing something important. We also have breakout rooms where one can go if silence is needed, although that's rarely used since people are generally socially aware of open office decorum. Your thoughts? Man, I, so I've never worked, and I don't know what any of us have, based on our previous discussions, in true open offices. But I find it really funny that open office is considered new. I mean, it is. It's it's a trend. When my vision of how engineering was in the 50s is rows upon rows of effectively uh, park benches with engineers on drafting tables talking and smoking cigarettes and as far as the eye can see. Did that ever exist, Jeff? It did exist. Okay. It's not just in cartoons. It's not just in cartoons. I, I think, though, you'd see, you know, large rows of, of uh, I mean, the, the pictures used to, that I think of would be, you know, the big rooms full of, of those at drafting boards. And yeah. so that's a, that's a different type of concentration when you're drawing something out than when you're trying to invent uh, what's going on. Uh, but certainly the, my first job, which was with, uh, General Motors in 1980-ish, 81, might have been the spring of 82. Um, everybody was in, in a big office. Now, like I said, in that office, we had glass dividers between the rows. So uh, your desk would bump up against somebody else's desk, but there was this glass divider between you. But if you stood up, you could look over the glass and see, uh, the other person. But, you know, it's, it was pretty open. You heard there was not privacy, much privacy as far as conversation. Uh, and then, of course, because of the, the arrangement, behind you, there was another desk where that engineer's back was to you. And again, anything that engineer said, you would immediately hear. Um, so there, there, was, there wasn't much privacy. Yeah. And also, I mean, one thing that, I, that could differentiate, you know, modern open office concepts with 
other ones potentially, uh, or you know, with historical uh, office layouts, maybe um, a headphones. I don't think there were a whole lot of headphones in those offices. No, and and uh, there's there's other concepts related to open office that I've seen visiting other facilities where like you don't even have a desk, right? Like you don't have an assigned space. It's more of a it's more of like a college engineering lab environment where, you know, there's desks and network ports available and outlets or, or maybe a better example is like, you know, the temporary workstations at an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never get anything done with one of those. You kind of have your locker and you just roll it up to whatever desk you pick to work in this day. Yeah. And, and you set up shop and there you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. That seems horribly unproductive. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be productive. Maybe if you're maybe if you're writing medium posts, I can't tell how much of it is, and you know, I, I don't even know how much research there is in this, but how much of it is about improving efficiency versus, you know, simply a structured informalism, if that's even a thing. But a, a structured informalism. Yes, that um, intentionally designing not to have like a office geographic permanence to it, mm-hmm. you know, that you're supposed to migrate around the building or between buildings, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, as somebody who likes to avoid meetings, I could see <laughs> serious advantages to that. Right. Um, right. You know. Well, well, so the, so the, the, at least the initial trade off in all this, of course, was cost. If you built an office and you put a door on it, you had two problems. One is that structure was pretty permanent. You couldn't, once you had established the walls of that office, you couldn't shrink it up a foot in either direction. Um, and it was expensive. And so the, uh, the idea of the, uh, the cubicles was, Hey, you have this, this modular system that can be changed. And so the, uh, the employees as they need to can move a wall this way or that way. Uh, they weren't originally intended to be all at 90 degrees. And it was at the same time it was cost savings. You know, it, it was now now you provide all the benefits of having you know a, a workspace that that uh, is enclosed and you know gives the people a sense of you know this is their area, but you don't have to build the uh, the actual office. It sounds you know at least early on it seemed like it was win win for everybody. How often do people actually rearrange the cubicles though? I feel like once it's up there, it's pretty much there until the it collapses out of from the heat death of the universe. Yeah. Well, well, that's sort of the, the dirty little secret of all that is that, uh, when I started my own business, uh, and needed some space, I set up some cubicle walls. Um, I was renting space and had my area from the people I was subleasing from. And, um, so a, those, those things are not cheap. You even, I was buying, you know, secondhand, uh, units and they were still expensive. Secondhand cubicles. sounds like an Indian. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. The name's yours. Uh, but but you have to hook it up, right? You have to get electricity into those systems. So now you have to find the right electrical outlet and run the wires through the bottom of the tracks. And, you know, those those uh, panels have the, the uh, recess to run those wires. But once you get it hooked up and you bring an electrician in to hook it up. Uh, you might as well have built an office. You might as well have built an office because you, you're, you are in less – you know, unless there's a real big need to do that, you are not changing it because at least as a small business owner, I'd spend a pretty good amount of money getting that set up. And so And time too. And and time, yeah. Well, especially at bigger offices too, where like, you know, since everyone's got overlapping um 
overlapping cubes, you know, rearranging one area usually means totally rearranging most of the floor of the office. Mm-hmm. At least, or at least that was the experience I had when I was at a huge company. And I have seen that done where we need, okay, we need five, six more desks. We're hiring new people. All right, everybody's cubicle gets a foot smaller, um, or we're completely rearranging this and deal with it. It's going to take two days. That would that would kill me. How does the? I guess you don't have much furniture in there. It's just one desk, maybe a, a shelf. What in the cubicle? Yeah, because right now I have. We have the kind of like the desks, you know, like bolt onto the walls of the cube at my mm-hmm. current job. So mm-hmm. I have a ninety degree. You know, I have two two desks that sort of form an L. And then there's uh, cabinets above the one desk and um, file drawers on one side and like a small thing for office supplies on the other. Yeah, that sounds about right. And you have one chair, right, for somebody who comes to visit you. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but I mean if you just wanted to like shorten a wall by a foot, I mean the, the, I guess our desks are like custom made to the size they already are. I wouldn't. I don't even have that option. Right. Or at least TI doesn't have that option. Yeah. Well, again, this uh, this idea that that uh, you could easily move around the cubicles is somewhat of a myth. I think it started out that way, but <laughs> well, and I also want to. I, I think there's there's some hilarious quotes out there. I think there was an interview. Oh, I remember reading this like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gentleman who invented the cubicle was like apologizing. Yeah, like the entire article was his apology to the world for inventing the cubicle. Um, you know, we, we had also transitioned when I was at the big company from, uh, I would guess your, your very typical late nineties, uh, five foot tall carpeted, you know, um, cubicles to, uh, you know, where like the walls are kind of like this fuzzy material mm-hmm. to these, uh, I called them super cubes, but I'm sure there's better names for it, but where the, you had kind of four by four pods that, uh, you know, the, the barriers between the pods were full size. And, um, but you and your pod mates would be basically staring eye to eye at each other. Right. You know, it, it was, you know, it was fine in and of itself, but like, you get used to it, but it like I remember when I first moved to it, it's like you're used to looking at a cue ball, and all of a sudden you're looking at, I guess whoever you're assigned to look at for the entire day, <laughs> right? You know. Right. Yeah, was, I, I found here the article, uh, or at least an article that talked about uh, Robert Propst, P R O P S T, who was apparently uh, the designer of the first workstation. Uh, and that workstation was called the Action Office 2. And uh, so by 1997, three years before Prop's death, the, United, the New York Times estimated that upward of 40 million Americans were working in cubicles. It was then that Prop's told the Times that he had designed the Action Office 2 to give knowledge workers a more flexible, fluid environment than the rat maze boxes of offices. Instead, corporations had perverted his intent to cut costs. All Propst had left was this final denouncement of what his creation had become. The cubicleizing of people in modern corporations is monolithic insanity. So, <laughs> apparently he didn't like what had become of his, uh, his original design. 
So offices. Okay, so has anyone worked in both a cube and an office? Yep. Yep. I I briefly have had a couple of cubicles, but not long enough to really settle in. Has anyone developed a preference? Office. Office. I like my door. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's that's the key. We have a door, but I have a we have a policy against closing the door, which I find funny. Hmm. But um uh, unless it's a conference call, but yeah, I would agree. But I will say this transitioning from the office to the, sorry, from the cube to the office was a bit unsettling. And it sounds a lot, a little bit like our, um, emailers comments or that was at least how was my experience where I was used to interacting with people as they would walk by and, mm-hmm. you know, move in and around the environment and I remember the first time I started at my new office, I went almost the entire day without talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was really unsettling to me. It took me a while to get used to. Hmm. I can um, still do that at my queue, but maybe we don't have enough people for that critical mass at our office. Yeah. I mean, it was an engineering floor with probably, you know, 100 people on it, but... The office definitely is different in terms of social interaction. It's probably better. It's probably worse than a cube, but or it's probably not. It's not quite the difference between an open office and a cube, but yeah, it's there. Mm. I don't know. See, at my last job, we had quite a bit of interaction, even with offices. Very, very few people kept their doors shut all the time. You only closed your door if you were taking a call or you really, really had to get some work done. But usually everything was open and you were still chatting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of been my experience with offices. Most people's offices, office doors are open um, nearly all the time. Yeah, and most of the time it doesn't bother me. If I'm doing a schematic layout or, a, you know, reviewing a PCB layout or whatever, it's not uh, a big deal. But when I have to, like, write something, like an app note or a design report or whatever it may be, I would really, really like to have a door I can just shut and tune everything out to type. Headphones only take you so far. <laughs> yeah. I will admit, while I don't have a cubicle, my team, for the most part, the, the technicians I work with, do have cubicles. And, and I will admit that um, collaboration is a lot easier in that, well, it's cubicle slash open office. I, I Probably the super cubicles you were talking about. Um, so I'll go over and talk to them when we need to have some discussion, especially if it's more than one person I need to talk to, because going into the tight office and having discussions kind of it, it kind of crowded to be honest mm-hmm. yeah well so you had asked brian whether whether we had a preference and there was a uh, article in forbes magazine in 2013 titled new research workers hate their cubicles i can't remember whose article oh, it was a it was research from the university of sydney australia and uh they found that that we had uh, office workers cubicle workers and open plan workers and so, uh, quoting from the article, they said, cubicle workers are the least happy among us, though open plan dwellers are not far behind. In addition to the sound privacy complaint, more than 30% of people who don't have their own offices feel frustrated by a lack of visual privacy. In other words, they have to look at their colleagues whether they like it or not. I guess that depends on whether you have visually interesting colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> um. Because I mean, I make that joke because I was going to say previously, if somebody says their headphones don't do enough for their privacy, they just need better headphones. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't spend any money on headphones. I just take whatever ones come with my phone. Oh, come on. That's that's a mistake. I, I think I'm going to invest, you know, going forward with this job. But I got to do some research and figure out what I want. But after all day, though, I just want to not have anything on my head. Yeah. yeah uh, but I would also say it's – I think it's funny the way we rationalize some things about like – well, I don't need the best blankety blank for work. You know, it's just my office. It's just what I, it's just what I sit on, but it's like the thing you end up, the chair you end up sitting in the most, Mm -hmm. you know, in a week is your office chair or no, you'll have nice headphones at home, but I wouldn't bring those to the office. Well, that's where you wear your headphones most of the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so as I, I look at the uh, the articles we have here, I'm just you know some of the titles. There's another Far- Forbes article from 2016. New study reveals that cubicle farms are ruining employee morale and output. From Psychology Today, why are cubicles make us miserable? Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that. And you, you tell me. I haven't read the article. Maybe nobody. Maybe it's not in there. How much of that is the cubicles' fault? You know, you know, just because you can't get that privacy of an office and how much is the office culture, um, you know, if it's some young hip startup and there's a Nerf war that could erupt at any time and uh, it's, you know, three o'clock dance hour. Well, yeah, you're not going to get shit done during the day. Yeah. Versus the office that puts up the big uh, six foot tall cubicle walls to because they're cheap is probably not spending much money on things like coffee for employees. Well, no, I mean, our, our cubicle walls are, are reasonably high and we have a, a nicely stocked break room, but it, it's a different culture. Like m- people buckle down and work. Um, you know, there's some socializing. We'll crack jokes and shout over the walls as needed. But for the most part, it's it's not uh, a free for all. Yeah. So uh, and just to go back, the, uh, you know, the tall, the tall partitions, right? The idea there is that uh, you get a little more visual blocking. So you feel a little more privacy. Uh, and you also get a little more sound deadening. So, uh, you know, if companies are buying the six to seven foot tall walls, they're really not cheaping out. They're spending more than they would if they got the uh, the shorter four or five foot walls. I don't see the point of a four foot wall. That just seems like a waste of money. You need some isolation. <laughs> How are you going to pick your nose while staring at sim results if uh, you only got a four foot wall and the whole room's wide open? I don't know. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> If I can't sit and have a pick and think about how I screwed up my calculations, why I shouldn't even go to work. I should just stay at home. (laughs) After the earlier comment about what you're going to do in front of the window, I'm thinking maybe you really do need to stay at home. (laughs) I'll I'll pack my scope up tomorrow and set it up. I'll let you know how it goes. All right. Well, so here's here's a little uh, bit of trivia that uh, you may not realize, and that is the tax code in the United States is partly to blame for the cubicle spread. What? Yep. Oh, this so, is in the Washington Post. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. So, so you've heard this story, uh, right? That that the whole healthcare there was a a sort of unintended consequence that there was some ability to take a tax write off if you offered healthcare to your employees, and that's how in the United States we got to the point where we're all dependent upon our employers for healthcare benefits. That was a World War Two uh, issue, wasn't it? Uh, I don't. I don't. It could have been that era. I'm not sure. Okay, uh, but but uh, anyway, for uh, for the cubicle, uh, this this as the Washington Post article, as Carmen pointed out, says sales for Herman Miller's design, which is the cubicle, didn't really take off until other competitors started promoting 
uh, producing such workstations themselves. Uh, yet the federal government played a role also. The Treasury in the 1960s made a slight but powerfully significant change in the tax code, making it easier for companies to write off depreciating assets. A shorter shelf life was established for furniture and equipment, while more permanent features of buildings had a longer range. In other words, it became cheaper to have an action office than an actual office. So, there you go. So it's it's so that they can depreciate crap. Well, the, you could write you could write off the the partitions a lot faster than you could write off the office because the office was considered part of the building. Kramer, you don't even know what a write off is, but Jerry, they do, and they're the ones who just write it off. <laughs> <laughs> wow, a sound effects and everything. Oh yeah, man, I know my Seinfeld. <laughs> we should just do it if we're ever short on an episode. and just got to wing it. I can probably just. <laughs> Get a solid 20 minutes doing Seinfeld lines. All right. Well, well stand by then. <laughs> uh, and just as I scroll down this article, item number nine, half of Americans say they thought their bathroom was bigger than their cubicle. I mean, maybe not my half bath, but certainly the master bath. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether that says more about their cubicle or their bath, but there you <laughs> that go. It might not be that far from the truth. <laughs> right. Right. Well, what do you need a giant? Would your office be much bigger than your bathroom? I mean, depending on how big it could be. Jeff doesn't sound like it'd be much bigger than a giant master bath. No, it isn't. If that. No, I, I had a bathroom that's far bigger than my office is. Yeah. I had a decent sized office at my last job. I'd put it on par with a, a standard, you know, bathroom. Maybe not a, a luxurious one, but you could have fit a shower and a toilet and a sink in there. Maybe a closet if you did it just right. It was, it was real nice when you had giant boxes of boards you had to, quote-unquote, organize. So my office is 9 by 9 I had a bathroom that was 9 by 12 Nice. Adam knows how to live. I was just laid out terribly, that bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Reg- regardless of what I have, cube or uh, office, I need storage space, most of all. Whether it's you know shelves or drawers or however the hell you want to do it for me um you know i got reference textbooks i got to put up there i I got the secret drawer of parts i get from vendors that i want to hide for myself and don't want to share with the lab because i know they need to be there if i need them you know you gotta Mm -hmm. have the the snack drawer right it's all it's all very critical and then you know the various organization i schemes i come up with like you know papers i'm going to read and app notes and shit i've read and you know Whatever else I come up with, right? <laughs> just just having a plain table with no drawer would would drive me absolutely crazy. I could not organize myself then. I need cubby holes, and I'm like a squirrel. I gotta store my nuts. <laughs> so. That's when you just start stacking stuff on the floor. You just have to you have to file by strata. <laughs> I've heard that works for some people, but not sounds me. like you've been to my office. <laughs> I have the little three-by-three three area that I actually work in, and then the yeah. pile of stuff behind me I need to file away that I haven't gotten to for three years. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you know you know which, which pile and how deep, then you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now if anybody is interested in learning more about the, the office, there is, in fact, a book, an entire book dedicated to this called Cubed, A Secret History of the Workplace. Uh, that was published in 2014. By the writers of Lint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, after uh, we received this 
this uh, email that we talked about at the beginning of the uh, the episode from Manraj, and I hope Manraj, I hope I've not butchered your name too horribly. That uh, Brian had told me about a book uh, called Peopleware: uh, Productive Projects and Teams, and he said it's covered in there. And I said, "What's covered in there?" And he said, "The whole bit about you know what kind of office you should have." And uh, I said, "Well, I have to know about this." And so uh, I ordered this book, Peopleware, uh, by uh, Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister. And I'm not all the way through it; I'm about sixty uh, percent, but. I have gotten through the part where they talk about the office environment. Part two of this book is the office environment. And, uh, well, so Brian, can you tell us exactly how they set up, how they are going to evaluate what really mattered in the, in the office environment? I would say, unlike a lot of the other garbage that exists in the business literature world and engineering literature world, this one's fairly uh, data-driven. Would you agree with that? I would. They don't in in this book. They do not give the you know. It's not like they're laying out the statistics. They kind of summarize for you. But it, it certainly would appear that they were fairly rigorous in accumulating their data. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. So they they set out to I think in a fairly agnostic um, with respect to environment, with respect to ability, blah blah blah, to find out which companies have the best engineers. And I think for the most part, they were evaluating software engineers, but it, all of the results could apply equally to other engineering disciplines. And uh, so they had these competitions called cold code wars where they would give, you know, pre-canned sets of problems to people who were volunteered by their major software companies to participate in this. And I'm sure in return, no, the companies were told, you know, your engineers are the greatest, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, they, in the book, they go into it that the, the individuals got to find out where they ranked amongst. Uh, so all the, all the results were sort of kept private, you know, from one from another. So the, like the company didn't know which of their engineers did well or better or yeah. worse, but they knew that on average their, their engineers did, you know, so much compared to the average and the individual engineers. Uh, were told how they did to the average. So they got some information. And of course, the researchers got all this information, so it was beneficial to them. So the way they set it up was pretty clever. It seemed to be uh, advantageous to all uh, all parties. Yeah. And it leads, to, it leads to some fairly interesting revelations with respect to where people work best. And so if I remember, one huge detail was that you know, if one engineer ranked really high or, you know, or competed really well in this, typically the other one would mm -hmm. and in a statistically significant way. And then they looked into it further. They found that there were similarities between the companies where the engineers worked and, uh, surprise, surprise, they weren't open office facilities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, and they they did say that people with offices worked better, and there was a whole discussion in the book about open office, non-open office, blah, blah, blah. But it came down to something that we can all probably recognize that is part of our life as an engineer, which is flow. I think they actually used that term, didn't they? They did, yeah. They they talked about the, the theory of flow and, and said how important that was to the engineering uh, work. Yeah, so – Anytime you're interrupted, 
you have to shift context, you get out of focus with respect to whatever problem you're working on. And it takes a certain amount of time to re-engage in that problem. And so the more you're, you're interrupted, the less efficient you are as an engineer. And that showed up in the statistics. A whole bunch of other really unflattering things about engineers shows up in the statistics. Like <laughs> They don't wear uh, pants and pick their nose? <laughs> no, it's like uh, <laughs> engineering performance is not uh, – uh, pay does not predict engineering performance. And uh, there's also a huge difference between like the best engineers and the worst engineers. And like uh, – the tail is huge on the statistical distribution for how long it would take people to do these tests. It's just, it's one of the few instances you actually see engineering efficiency and productivity actually measured, I guess is a good simple way to say it, but right. it all comes down to flow and offices are better for flow. Open concept and cubes are not. I could hypothesize that cubes would be better than open offices uh, simply because it's slightly more segmented, but I don't think that was evaluated specifically. And Jeff, you've read a more up-to-date version than me, but was that evaluated? If it was, I didn't, I didn't catch it in my, in my first uh, read-through. They're basically just saying offices versus no office, I think. Right. So, so they went through and, and as a result of this, you, you've mentioned some of these things, but, you know, for as far as, you know, these co coding wars, what did they show? Well, they said the, uh, the best programmer versus the worst programmer, one outperformed the other by a factor of 10 to 1. And as you mentioned, if you outperformed the average 10 to 1, it was likely that your other programmers who were also from your same company also outperformed 10 to 1. Uh, so they did, they couldn't tell you whether it was the, the, you know, whether the best performers w gathered at the same companies or not. Uh, but certainly many companies have assumed that they're going to get just a, a random scattering of good, you know, good programmers and bad programmers, or I guess we could say good engineers and bad engineers. And that's not the case that for whatever reason, uh, all the good engineer or all, all the good programmers tend to accumulate in the same place or the culture there is such that the programmers become good because there's a culture that in encourages that, that type of uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the things that didn't matter at all, like you were indicating, language, it didn't matter what language they programmed in, whether it be COBOL or Fortran or C++. Uh, it didn't matter years of experience. You know, Once you got beyond about six months, it didn't matter whether you'd been there 20 years or two years. Hmm. Yeah, that, that was really disheartening. And, and as you mentioned, salary didn't seem to make any difference either. So then they went through and they they said, well, if these things don't make a difference, what is there something about the workplace the, the, that do, you know, these factors that do make a difference? So they, they compared those who were in the uh, top quartile, top 25% against those who were in the bottom 25%. So these factors did make a difference. How much dedicated workspace do you have? Those who performed in the first quartile had on average 78 square feet, while those who performed in the bottom quartile had 46 square feet. Now, think about it. 46 square feet is not a lot of room. <laughs> I can literally hear people getting out tape measures and measuring their office. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Environmental factor two. Is it acceptably quiet? Now, what's interesting is the researchers didn't make any measurements of actual you know, decibels of noise. They just asked is your office acceptably quiet? So this is up to the individual as to whether that's the case or not. But those that said it was acceptably quiet, 
In the top quartile, 57% said yes. In the bottom quartile, only 29% said yes. Is your office acceptably private? In the top quartile, 62% said yes. In the bottom quartile, only 19% said yes. Uh, can you silence your phone? 52% in the top quartile, 10% in the bottom quartile. Can you divert your phone calls? 76 in the top quartile, 19% in the bottom quartile. And the one that, uh, uh, at least to me, was always the problem with, with having a cubicle desk, do people often interrupt you needlessly? <laughs> and, and those who were in the top quartile said only 38% of them said yes, whereas those who were in the bottom quartile, 76% said yes. So if you, if you read through the entire book, uh, you certainly get the idea that these authors believe that things like uh, providing enough office space, uh, putting doors on offices, uh, may, you know, you may not have to give everybody a private office, but you can give two or four people an office so that they can at least close the door. And, and so if you go through the book, they, they make the case that uh, uh, the, those businesses that try to save money on office furniture or, or in, in, by making these cubicles are, are making a poor choice. Uh, because you're you're really costing uh, the efficiency and the effectiveness of your of your uh, engineering staff. Yeah, noise is what sometimes gets me. If one of the two people on either side of me has a lot of meetings, it's really tough to just tune that out for all day. Right. Thankfully, I'm I'm just a grunt in the trenches uh, taking grenades, so I don't have a ton <laughs> of meetings. Right. And I can always retreat to the lab and do some lab work I've been putting off. You know, if it gets too loud. Right. Right. Well, I, as, as long as we're talking about the, uh, the people wear book, I'll, I'll just, uh, this part two was about the, uh, the office environment. I'll, I'll quickly uh, run through some of the ideas from part one, which was managing the human resource, um, which was talking a little more about, uh, the, the fact that, uh, engineers are not, uh, or programmers are not interchangeable pieces. Each of us have our own talents and our abilities and need to be treated as individuals Nonsense. Yep. So, uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the, the quote I took out of chapter one was the major problems of our work are not so much technological as sociological in nature. Yeah. Work wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the customers, managers, marketers, HR, you know, whoever it is that's bugging you that day. <laughs> I believe we've often said that on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of our, a lot of an engineer's work is communication. All right. Uh, chapter two, quote I took out of there, steady state production thinking is particularly ill-suited to project work. Uh, the whole idea that uh, if you, you know, that we can sort of plan, you're going to come up with one brilliant idea today and one brilliant idea tomorrow, and we expect five brilliant ideas by the end of the week. And uh, if, if you're not getting enough bright ideas, we'll bring in two people to replace you and we'll get twice as many bright ideas. Yep. That is the single most dangerous fallacy in engineering planning. <laughs> it's like you could you could plan the ideas. Yes. Yeah, that, that's why I hate Microsoft Office or not Office, but Project. Yes, as long as it's in a Gantt chart, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but we only budgeted three weeks for design. Why is it taking longer? <laughs> you need to figure out how to get it done in those three weeks with no bugs, of course. That's right. Well, that, that comes to uh, chapter three, 
which basically says that uh, most of the management techniques are designed not to increase effectiveness or innovation, but just to make you work harder. So the, uh, the quote I stole from there was people under time pressure don't work better. They just work faster. Yeah, I'd buy that. I mean, you may think that you work better under pressure, but really you just come up with your first idea and have to roll with it because there's no time. Yeah, I, I, I'm really, I mean, this book repeated it. And I, I have read this number of places that you try to say that people are, are much less, much less effective after about 40 hours in a week. And I've worked a number of jobs where, where the expectation is you got to put in definitely more than 40 hours. And I haven't, you know, it, I've, I guess I've never felt like my effectiveness dropped off. I mean, if I, if I'm putting in long weeks, you know, long hours, week after week after week, yes, definitely it falls off. But, um, well, I mean, it's probably not like a switch flips. Like if you work 45 hours or 50 hours one week, you know, you, it's not like once you cross that 40 hour mark, you're just going to like slump over like a robot who's been turned off. Yeah. It's probably a gradual thing. At 42 hours, you're at 90% efficiency, and you know, at 48, you're down at 86 or something. Well, and I tend to believe it's not just that, you know, okay, so the 40 hours are at full efficiency, and then hour 41 is at reduced efficiency. All 41 of those hours are reduced. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, that's also assuming you're working full bore for the full 40 hours and not, you know, grabbing coffee or talking with someone about the latest Walking Dead episode or whatever it is you, you like to socialize about. <laughs> right. Or reading a news article or whatever. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I like I like working under a, with a little bit of a deadline, but I also need time to review. Usually after one or two chances of looking something over, I'll catch most of the really dumb mistakes. Right. And then, yeah, there's always going to be some detail that you've missed and it pops up and you got to hope it's not a big one. But, uh, yeah, uh, on the whole, you can't have too much of a time crunch, or yeah, you'll miss you'll miss the easy stuff. There's no time for that review. Just ship it, <laughs> right? Right. Well, so, well. So, speaking of quality and making, trying to make sure that you don't make a mistake, in the uh, the following chapter, they talk about uh, the it's it's titled "Quality of Time Permits," and it was kind of interesting. They talked about a market derived quality. Uh, as being a bad thing, and that was like just enough quality that the consumer would still buy, but nothing beyond that. There was no sense in in uh, going beyond that. Uh, but uh, these authors claim that quality, uh, far beyond that required by the end user, is a means to higher productivity. And so they claim that if you are really dedicated to quality, that it won't hurt your productivity. In fact, it will benefit your productivity. Uh, and, and in fact, this goes back to there was a book called Quality is Free, uh, published by Phil Crosby in 1979. And uh, this idea was that if you really focus on quality, you know, that effort uh, will give you productivity benefits. And so uh, the, the authors here write, we have an awful inkling that Crosby's book has done more harm than good in industry. The problem is that the great majority of managers haven't read it, but everybody has heard the title. The title has become the whole message. Managers everywhere are enthusing over quality. The sky's the limit for quality. We'll have as much free quality as we can get. This hardly boils down to a positive quality consciousness. The attitude is just the opposite of what Crosby advocates. Uh, the real message of the linked quality and productivity effect needs to be presented in slightly different terms. Quality is free, but only for those who are willing to pay heavily for it. 
I can see that. And that's also intertwined with office culture. If you believe in what you're doing, you'll be more likely to second guess yourself and, you know, make sure you're really running at the optimal solution. And, you know, as you trade off cost and ease of manufacturability versus ruggedness and, you know, you'll make sure you're sitting at that sweet spot. Whereas if there's a good enough attitude that pervades everything, you'll Mm -hmm. just kind of put your thumb out there and squint and say, "Eh, it's good (laughs) enough. No, I I have no idea what you're talking about, Carmen. (laughs) But none of us have ever done that before. We're always always the exception to all these rules. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you drive quality from the very beginning and, you know, you, you give people something to be prideful of and, you know, make it not a, a terrible work environment. So if there are cubes, they're not all battleship gray and you can maybe see some sunlight occasionally and there's a little bit of noise isolation versus, yeah, you, you have to design a $200 million widget while also staring at whoever it is that just is constantly tapping their foot and snapping gum across your open <laughs> floor plan. <laughs> right. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, we, we don't always have to have the perfect, uh, the perfect office, you know, just something that will let us get the job done is usually enough. And that's, that's another focus here in the book is that, uh, most people want to do a good, good job. You know, it isn't that they, uh, when they ask for a quieter workspace, it's not like, the average engineer, you know, once once the uh, Taj Mahal, uh, it is, you know, I just give me some quiet because I I would really like to get a, some work done. That you know, what, what you hear is people calling in sick the day before a presentation so they can actually stay at home and get the work done, or, or uh, you know, sneaking out to a to a local restaurant or a cafe so they can you know be away from all the ringing phones and and get some work done. Are you familiar with Parkinson's law? This must mean something different than I think it means. Maybe in passing. Okay, so so Parkinson's law is the adage that work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. Ah, uh, that sounds right. So the uh, so w- the way this works is that if if the management philosophy is if we give them three months, they'll take three months. So we should only give them two months, even if we think it's going to take three months. Then it, you know, you're keeping the time pressure on the people all the time. And again, this is into the, this is into the attitude that, well, if you give them three months, they're going to goof off and take all three months. They'll never come back and tell you that they've finished early, not made a good use of their time. So, uh, one of the things that these researchers did was, uh, they looked at some universe, uh, some data from the University of South Wales, uh, where they in, investigated this. And so, uh, two researchers at the University of New South Wales, uh, Michael Lawrence and R- Ross Jeffrey ran annual surveys through the 80s and 90s, and they measured live projects in industry uh, according to a common data collection standard. And so they wanted to find out about estimating methods. So we talked, in fact, the very first, I think, episode of this podcast, uh, I mentioned that my trick was the rule of pi. Whatever I'd not done before, I knew it was going to talk cost, it was going to take about three times as long and three cost three times as much as I initially guesstimated. And so I just multiply by pi, and that way I have as much precision as someone is asking for. So, so this survey basically said, okay, is the estimate of how long the project is going to take, is that estimate provided by the programmer alone, or the supervisor alone, or the programmer and supervisor together? 
All right. And then they measured the, the productivity of the, of the uh, participants based on that time estimate. And so if the programmer alone estimated uh, productivity, they got a rating of about eight. Uh, if the supervisor alone rated it, they got an average productivity by, of about 6.6. And if the program, programmer and supervisor collaborated, they got 7.8. I'm not sure what the units of productivity are. All I'm hearing is it sounds like the supervisor is dragging us down. That does sound like that. Okay, so they brought in, they said, well, maybe that's not it. Maybe what we need to do is we need to bring in an outside party. So they brought in a systems analyst who was independent of the programmer supervisor. And so we basically, uh, they reran the numbers. I guess these are the same numbers. And so with the system and analyst guessing how long it should take, now the average productivity was 9.5. So previously the best we had was eight. And now we have productivity of 9.5. If the system analyst is making the judgment, the independent party. And this was for how long a task should take, right? Yep. Okay. Now, so here's the kind of mind-bending part of it. So now they did it where they made no estimate whatsoever. And if they made no estimate for how long the project should take, their average productivity, which the previous best had been 9.5 with the systems analyst, the average productivity was now 12. So uh, the projects on which the boss had applied no schedule pressure whatsoever, uh, in other words, just wake me up when you're done, had the highest productivity of all. So the authors say here, the decision to apply schedule pressure to a project needs to be made in much the same way you decide whether or not to punish your child. If punishment is rare and your timing is impeccable, so the justification is easily apparent, then maybe it can help. If you do it all the time, it's just a sign that you've got problems of your own. Hmm. Well, so we've had a few things to say here about the, uh, the typical engineering workspace. Uh, and what makes and doesn't make for a, a good work environment. It seems that uh, what it sort of boils down to is is the uh, the distractions and interruptions. If you're constantly being distracted and interrupted, you can't get into the flow, and that makes you n- less effective. On the other hand, trying to convince your boss or manager that they need to spend more money on providing you with an office is usually a losing battle. So I'm not sure where you, <laughs> where you <laughs> call the... Uh, uh, you make the decision there uh, what to do about it, but uh, it's it. If you do have a chance to uh, find a quiet space, that's always, I, I think, a pretty good thing. Definitely spend some time and uh, make sure you have the optimal work setting. Fight for your right to not party. <laughs> to not party. There you go. <laughs> so we had a question from a, a listener, Andrew B, who said. Uh, Hey guys, thanks for the podcast. I'm currently back in school for energy generation. Is that generating energy or he's part of the energy generation? Probably generating energy. Okay. <laughs> says, I enjoy your podcast a lot. In fact, the podcast talking about the grid motivated me to go back to school. That's pretty impressive. Wow. That's awesome. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Uh, I cannot read or watch things at work. So I listen to podcasts. I'm guessing maybe not as not currently an engineering job. When I do board layout, I listen to podcasts. I can't do it when I code, but yeah. Right. Right. So anyway, Andrew finishes up with, uh, I hope you might have some podcast suggestions for me. So we, at the end of a uh, previous episode, we talked about the YouTube channels 
that we listen to and uh, will not go into a, there's so many good podcasts out there that will not go on uh, about it, but I thought maybe each of us could listen, uh, could list one or two podcasts that we enjoy uh, so that maybe we suggest something that uh, Andrew can listen to as uh, he's, he's uh, finishing the work day so he can uh, spend a little time going back to school. Ooh, I'm scrolling through my list. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't limit it to three. I'd go with Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Okay. Uh, Joe Rogan's podcast has been gaining a lot of attention to me. It really depends on what he is. He, he talks to some crazy people. So for me, it's a little bit like the AM Coast to Coast used to be. Uh, <laughs> um, when, they, when they talk about UFOs every other night? Yeah. Dan Carlin's anything. So common sense and hardcore history. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently listening to, uh, to the latest, uh, hardcore history that he's talking about the Cuban missile crisis, which is, yeah, is, uh, good. All this stuff is usually pretty good. It's like a six hour podcast too, isn't it? It, it, it is a six yeah. hour podcast. Yeah. I'm only about two hours into it. Um, the lawfare podcast is really cool. Lawyers talking about international, um, uh, conventions and norms when it comes to like you know warfare and um clandestine activities yeah what's the name of that again law fair so think about warfare but replace war with law okay cool uh and hello internet cpg gray and brady harnan haran sorry so very good and then there's a new one uh Pod Save America is pretty good. Hmm. What's that about? Uh, it's the 1600 Guys' new podcast. Hmm. I'll check that one out. Did you listen to Keeping It 1600? No, but I'd heard about it. Uh, it's pretty snarky. They de- It's definitely political. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it, it sounds like it would be. But it's funny. It's It's pretty funny. Gotcha. All right. I'm going to go with, uh, if you're looking for educational, uh, you know, embedded, the spark app, amp hour, you know, the ones we all know and talk about. Uh, if you're going for, let's see, a lot on my list here. I'm scrolling through. If you're looking for just interesting and not, uh, engineering related, I'm going to yeah, go that's with what I was trying to do too. special sauce with Ed Levine. Uh, Ed Levine is, probably famous for more than just what I know him for, but he's the uh, editor-in-chief and uh, head honcho over at Serious Eats, a great website. You should check it out. They can send me a sponsor check now. <laughs> um, and once a week, he'll put out a, a half an hour to an hour or so show with um, someone just in the food industry, uh, whether it's a, a famous cook or author or someone he's known throughout the years. And it, it's a pretty interesting take on you know the world and their experience in the food industry. I really like it. Um, and then just, uh, you know, you're, you're stressed at work. These are stressful times. Go, uh, go, you look nice today. There have been no new episodes in forever, but you can get all the old ones. They're hysterical and just, just laugh a little bit. And the title that's you look nice. You look nice today. Yes. A journal of emotional hygiene. (laughs) Okay. Oh, an obvious one that, you know, if you really want to lose a weekend is uh serial. I'm sure everyone's listened to it, but if you haven't and didn't get into the second season, I didn't find it as compelling as the first. 
well, I've not listened to any of them. So maybe that's something I'll do on a long weekend. It's a good exercise in uh, human memory, the fallibility of human memory. Hmm. Okay. What about you, Adam? Anything you listen to? Right now, most of what I've got going on uh, is catching up on brewing network shows about home brewing and the beer industry. Um, not exactly engineering related. Well, sort of engineering related, I guess. If somebody's interested in beer brewing and you want to recommend one, what what would you recommend? Well, just anything by the brewing network. They're uh, kind of a – they start off as an internet radio network, and they've got about five shows. Brew Strong is probably the best one to start with, kind of the more technical, ver- technical of their shows. Um, but I've got okay. weeks of listening time of backlog to catch up on. Um, other than that, I've been listening to some uh, – well, with the new house and such and projects, um, I've been listening to Fine Home Building Podcast. Are there good ones? That's a pretty good one. It's really about building science, and it appeals to me as an engineer because they do get – it's not just, oh, take these two-by-fours and nail them together or things like that. It's talking about how to design an insulation system and an air barrier system and the science of why – houses are being built the way they are and why you air seal the way you do. That's kind of a, an interesting one, but definitely aimed more at not, not super, super technically there. It's really aimed at uh, builders and, and extremely avid DIYers, but that's kind of about all I've been listening to lately. It keeps me uh, pretty occupied. Right. You Jeff. Well, uh, Brian mentioned one that I, I love listening to, and that is, is the stuff by Dan Carlin. Hardcore history and uh, common sense. Both of those are uh, always interesting to listen to. I'm always, he doesn't put stuff out on a real regular basis. Uh, and as we were mentioning, when he puts something out, you can generally, at the hardcore history, you can count on it being a two to four hour podcast normally. This latest one is six hours. Uh, so when you get something, you get a big chunk of it. Uh, it's like a free audio book. It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, In the most recent uh, common sense, he uh, was talking to James Burke. Mm-hmm, right. Which, which, if that's a great show for engineers, I feel. Uh, James Burke did Connections mm-hmm. and Connections Squared. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And the day the universe stood still, I think. But never mind. Continue. The next two that I listen to probably most often uh, are both from the, uh, the Twit Network. But I listen to Security Now uh, with Steve Gibson. Listen to all the all the ways that all our computer pro, you know our operating systems are failing around us, uh, and this makes me constantly aware of of being too prideful about any of my work, whether it's programming or anything else. That there, it's just so easy to make a small mistake when it comes to security. All it takes is you know you have to be perfect all the time to keep people from breaking into your system, and uh, uh, it's just the smallest things. They they, they talked uh, a number of episodes back about. Uh, somebody had changed the main compiler. I don't know. They went from 32-bit to 64-bit compiler, and just in the compiler, some just tiny little change was made that that you know uh, created this opening that caused a bug that you know led to something else. And so you see all the time where where you know the big companies, you know Microsoft and Google and Apple are constantly struggling. Adobe, you know, or, or they're struggling to close the holes in their their operating systems, and just just how hard it is to. Uh, to maintain secure systems in the midst of this uh, era where everything is computer communication. We rely on it for everything. 
uh, and yet it's in you know essentially much of it's broken. Uh, <laughs> it's it's so easy for somebody to uh, to get in the middle. So I li- enjoy listening to that. And uh, the other one that that I listen to a lot is Windows Weekly, which is another show where all they talk about is the Microsoft stuff uh, and uh, you know the latest in. in tools and, and applications that come out of Microsoft. And uh, since I live in kind of a Microsoft-centric world, mm-hmm. I find that interesting to see what's, uh, what's going on. And I, I guess the, uh, the other one that I listen to a lot is uh, our education partner is uh, Big Beacon, uh, which is a, uh, a, they call themselves a social movement uh, to, uh, to revolutionize engineering education. And so uh, the head of Big Beacon is David Goldberg, and he has a uh, weekly radio show, uh, internet radio show, but uh, you can get that as a podcast, which is uh, Big Beacon Radio. Uh, and so uh, his focus is mostly on higher education, not necessarily engineering, but talking about education, uh, many times engineering education. And so uh, I enjoy listening to that. And he, occasionally he has on a guest that uh, has something new to say about engineering education that I've not thought of before. So all right. Well, it sounds like everybody should be covered now. We, we have about every <laughs> podcast on the internet there. <laughs> well, I, I heard the other day that somebody was talking about, uh, you know, everybody thinks that podcasting is so established. Uh, and to those of us that are involved in podcasts or listen to podcasts, and it does seem like it's been around for a long time. But, you know, the majority of Americans don't know what a podcast is. Uh, and until there's sometime soon, right, you'll, be, you'll hop in your car and instead of turning on the radio, you'll be able to punch up a podcast. And at that point, then podcasting will be big. Uh, so I, I think we're still in the infancy of the uh, the medium. You mean other people don't have that set up right now? Amazingly, not everybody has that set up. That's right. You get in the car, turn it on, press play, and podcasts go? Okay. Well, you, you, you st- <laughs> I mean, I don't know how your, how your car works, but at least mine, I still have to... Uh, you know, connect connect through Bluetooth to the uh, to the system inside the car. And before that, I had to, you know, either either uh, put in some sort of uh, uh, headset earpiece or something, which which was semi illegal, depending on the state of residence, uh, <laughs> and and or or you know, put something in the car that would blast the uh, uh, blast it. I guess I guess for the most part, I I had a. Uh, just a plug that would plug into the auxiliary port of the of the car stereo, so I could listen to whatever was coming off of my phone. I suppose that's actually what I do, but yeah, you, <laughs> you, you hop in and you push the play button, and, and it goes. Yeah. Right, right. But 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 before that, I had an MP3 player, right? And, you, and I actually had to come, you know, to my computer and plug it in and download to the MP3 player before I got to the car. Can you imagine how inconvenient that was? Yes, I can. <laughs> oh, I remember worse. Yeah. I only recently got Wi-Fi syncing to work properly. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Well, tell you what, we've uh, talked about the workplace. We've talked about some podcasts. And next episode, we are going to have a guest. Yeah, we got a few lined up here for the next few weeks. It, it's, it's been a while since well, we, we promised at the end of last year that we'd have some guests. Uh, and here we are rolling into the third episode of the, is this the second or third episode? I think the third episode of the year, and we've not yet had a guest. So I was afraid our listeners would think we'd forgotten about that promise, but the guests are coming. For sure. Okay. Well, hopefully everybody has enjoyed this podcast, uh, and we'll tune in to hear the next podcast uh, with our guests. And uh, until then, I hope you guys have a good couple of weeks. All right. You too. Talk to you guys later. 
All right. Take care, guys. Bye. See you. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.